All right, everybody, I'm Rogers Healy, and I am your host of Rogers Music Tour. It's an account I created a few years ago to go and couple my love for music memorabilia with my love for storytelling. And today I have one of my best friends, somebody that I have been a legitimate fan of for more than half my life, a fellow Texan and someone who has genuinely touched my life and given me gifts that um, many people haven't. And uh, Ryan Cabrera, thanks for, for being on the show today, my friend. Well, 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 it all comes down to this. It all comes little down to Little did I know, 20 years ago, 20 we were uh, li living in a little apartment building with, with big dreams. We both had big dreams that we'd end up right here, 20 years later, on a podcast together. On this podcast. Being interviewed by you. Yeah, it's, it, it's full circle, you know, and I know that some people go for maybe Pulitzers, some people go for Grammys, but today it's about being a guest on Roger's Music Tour. Um, yeah. So... Uh, thanks for being here. P people that don't know this, Ryan, um, I met you back in 2003. And I don't know if you saw kind of the teaser I put up on the Instagram account yesterday, but something that I've, I've been very vocal with with you, and I'll, I'll say it again, is what you did for me um, at a very young age is something that um, really no one else has ever done. You gave me the gift of a friendship from somebody that was um, just beyond influential in my life and how you welcomed me and how you made me feel like I was a part of something um was well, you were i mean you were you were you were along for you know you know what is the beginning of you know for me my my whole career was you know kind of when we met and you got to like kind of see it all go down like you know the the ups downs the every which way it is you know and how much work it is especially back then yeah. to make it in the music business like you came to you know you came on tour with us you know, you jumped in the tour bus, you jumped in the bunks, even though you're six something and the bunks fit someone like five, nine, you've been on TRL with me, like uh, we, we did New York together. You kind of, you were there from the, from the very start, obviously we were, you were doing something completely different, but you, uh, you got to witness, you know, what it's like. Yeah. But I, you know, in the music business. yeah, but just in business in general. And I think, you know, when I moved to LA, I didn't really do a whole lot of homework and I wasn't very well prepared, which I think played to my favor. Um, yeah. But I remember it was like a Tuesday and I didn't have much direction. I was living in Dallas and I called my parents. And I was like, you know what? I want to move to LA. And they were like, why? What, what, what do you want to do in LA? And I said, I want to be the next Ashton Kutcher or the next John Cusack. And yeah. by Saturday I was living there, but uh, you probably know this. That's kind of how it happened for me too. It was, it was a, it was a, Joe Simpson's like, all right, you're going to move to LA and move in with me and, you know, the family. And then next thing I know, I packed a bag and just left school and I, I was in LA. I just kind of was thrown into it like you were. Yeah. But the difference between you and me is you had a talent and you had something that actually would take you there. And had you, had you, the th like, just like, you know, LA is one of those places that it could take you two auditions. It could take you 20 auditions. It could take you 12 years. You know, it just kind of depends on if someone is willing to dedicate that much time to one thing. Had you stayed, now obviously you, you, you went along the path that you were meant to, to take because you've taken over, you know, the world that you're in, but had you stayed around, you 100% would have made it in that world because what you have is what, you know, a lot of these people want, which is going into a room and being able to, you know, just own that room and have a presence. And that's what, you know, entertainment is. But it's also luck, you know, it's being in the right room at the right time, you know, meeting the right person. The one night that you could have, that you would have, you know, gone out, but you know what, you're like, not you, I'm just saying in general, like with people, 
how life is crazy is like there's a night that you maybe stayed in that if you would have went out that night you could have yeah. met this one person that led to this thing yeah. to this leads to this thing so i still think though that you if you would have stayed around you would have definitely made it in in the in tv or movies or something I, I appreciate it and i think full circle what i get to do now is i get to i think one of the hard things about la that people don't really think about like me is that you have a legitimate talent and you get to be Ryan Cabrera for a living and you get to go and be a singer, a songwriter, a husband, an influential person, all while being yourself. And I think for a guy like me, when I moved out there, what I was going to kind of say is my ignorance was very blissful and did it on a whim without a lot of research. And the night I got there, I literally went to Boston market with my dad and I had a lady scooping me macaroni and I was just, you know, trying to, get in the mood of, of meeting everybody. And she said, what do you do? I was like, well, I'm an actor. What do you do? She goes, well, I'm an actor. I was like, what are you doing at Boston market? That is, you gotta do. that's so crazy. Everybody's got to do something. You got to, you know, you got to, you got to keep working. Got to pay yeah. them bills. Yeah. But you know, I, I want to obviously make sure to honor um, your time about your journey and our friendship. But you know, this whole thing is I, I felt a calling a few years back uh, just through stories like this and people that have touched my life and, you know, influence me through this music stuff. And it's, it's a whole job. It's a whole, you know, diverse um, collection of people like Ryan Cabrera, people like Don McLean, Joe Elliott, Tchaikovsky, everybody. But I have found, especially over the past few years, and I haven't really shared this with people is I learned a lot throughout the COVID era and throughout the, you know, election era that no matter how uh, difficult it is to comprehend, the only thing that can really bring people together, no matter your background or your beliefs is music. And so I, I put some life behind it, put a little bit of investment behind it. And yeah. music's wow. for everybody. It is. And I think that no matter how hard you don't want to like me or I don't want to like you, when that song comes on the radio or in the car or whatever, and you kind of both see your feet stomping on the ground and somebody playing the drums, you're like, okay, we've got a connection. And so what I learned from you is how to stay consistent, how to be yourself, but also how to go and have such an incredibly unique brand in music and you know and something i'm going to bring up later is this is one of my favorite pieces <laughs> I've, I've carried it with me for real for 20 years because this wow, that's not something easy to carry around dude that thing is huge was that from that's from the that's like a promotional thing yeah. from a record store huh yeah 2004 and it's it's literally one of my most prized possessions because it just represents so much but um i i want to kind of get there and so i i thought that you know i, I want to get the uh background I want to make sure we touch on that. And I know you mentioned moving out of Dallas, but people don't yeah. know you have a group called Rubik's Groove, where I was a fan of Rubik's Groove back in the day. But I, I don't know if people should find out about Rubik's Groove. It was that was a that was a, but you know we all have our beginnings, and you know looking back, you know it was who, what helped me develop into you know becoming a solo artist and, and being having the confidence to do that. But you know I was actually I feel blessed to come from that time period because of like the Rubik's Cruise, like because we had to grind every, like we were in school during the week, you know, went to Jesuit and every weekend, whether it be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, any gig we could take, we were playing. Whether it be, you know, one person, two people, you know, sometimes we got lucky, it'd be 50, 100, 200. Um, but those are the things that kind of built up, you know, me to be ready for LA. You know, so I was, you know, kind of a little different from you, like the Ruby's Groove days of, you know, me and being in a band. I got to, you know, you know, work up, play a gig for two people. And and I played my, my heart out and I didn't get play any less just because there's less people. But those things, you know, built the character to where when it was time to go 
sing for record labels, I had confidence to go sit, you know, in a room with the president of a label, just me and him, and just sing with the guitar. How and old were you? Pretty wild. That was, tw- see, 2002. What are we now? I'm about to be 40 in a month. God. So I don't know. I do the math. Maybe like 22-ish, something like that. And then, you, so I mean, were the aspirations we, from an early age to go to LA or to New York and, and make it big as a singer? No, I never even thought I was gonna be sick. All right, so the year is 2002. I do a showcase, Hard Rock Cafe in Dallas, and uh, Joe Simpson saw me. Literally, was like, "All right, you're gonna move to LA. You're gonna move in with my family." I was going to UTD at the time. I'd been in school for about three months, and uh, I was like, "All right, well, Joe Simpson wants me to come move to Los Angeles." I'd never even thought about moving to Los Angeles. Um, I was planning on just going to school and playing gigs on the weekends. And then uh, next thing I know, literally, I, I packed a bag. I didn't even have a pair of shoes. All I had was flippy floppies. And uh, next thing I know, I moved to Encino, California, and I'm living with the Simpson family. And, and Jessica at the time, obviously, was a, a pretty big deal. Yeah, Jess was huge at the time. And so you went from just kind of being a weekend gig guy to all of a sudden you're thrown into L.A. Yep, just and- throw it in the mix. And uh, I remember one of my first memories, actually, was uh, so I had a rental car. They uh, they rented me a car out there and the Porsche. I had no, I had a Mustang. No, 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 no. Porsche. Porsches was like that was you know one day if I ever sign a big record deal, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna get. I had two things on my list. One was an English Bulldog and one was a Porsche. So that's later. But this is this is rental car time period. But I remember uh, I had a, a Mustang, a Mustang rental car, and it was like the second day of living with them. And Jess and Nick were over for like TV night or something, movie night or something, and I had to go somewhere, and I backed my Mustang into Nick Lachey's brand new BMW. Nice. And just backed it right into the front of it, didn't see, and I was like, crap, I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm gonna do, I don't know what to do, like, you know that, it's going through your head, like, I'm so embarrassed, do I tell him, what do I do, do I just drive off? Have you met him before? I met him, but I don't know him very well. You know, I'm the new part of the family. I'm the new guy that Joe found in California. I'd met Ashley before, so I knew Ashley because we had the same vocal teacher, and uh, I took her to John Mayer <laughs> when she was in Texas once. So uh, we kind of known each other a little bit. But uh, so then all of a sudden, in the you know in the like five second period of me back in his car, his alarm starts going off, and so the alarm in his car goes off. So then now out walks Tina, Joe. Jessica Simpson, Nicholas Shea, and I'm just sitting in the car, just mortified. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. And he was so cool about it. He was like, dude, it's all good. It's all good. You know, we'll, we'll get it fixed. Don't don't sweat it. I was like literally about to be in tears. I was about to cry. But uh, he was that really was cool. Like, what, 2000, that would have been 2003. 2002. So yeah, I got there. I got there in 03. And... Yeah, that was when 03 was when I finally. Uh, got a publishing deal so i got into the apartments so yeah. i got my own i got my own pad and 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 the story goes i sent a mass email out you know this was i probably had three or four hundred people in my contact list and i titled it rogers healy is moving to la and the whole premise was i'm gonna make it big and i want your help in meeting people and thomas bain who was brad alessi's roommate at a&m said uh, yeah that brad is moved to la he's working for an up-and-coming singer y'all should connect and so you know that how it happened well do what that's how it happened. Yeah, so I flew out. You, you don't. You probably don't remember this, but you know, I was I was very ignorant and I was very naive, but I was also just so mortified of the thought of being friends with someone who was a professional singer because it was such a. It was just. It still is. I mean, this is just crazy that I'm friends with you and you're spending your time with me. But 
I remember flying out there and meeting y'all through like for like 20 minutes and I signed a lease and made it my goal just to be y'all's friend. And <laughs> I well, remember, that, would, that would have happened inevitably any, anyway. Well, but you gotta, I mean, for someone that was just so ignorant to the scene and uh, you know, the innocence kind of played to my favor a little bit, but when you and I really clicked, I was like, man, this is going to be like this. It's, this is going to be a story someday that I can tell my kids that, I was best friends with a guy that, that made it happen. And so, yeah, well, we, I mean, we were kind of all in the same boat. We all, we all had that like innocence to us because, you know, like I hadn't sold any records yet. You know, I think I had just signed a deal and things were starting to happen. Like on, that was right in the beginning of like on the way down, it was just starting to get on the radio a little bit. And then we were starting to do some stuff, but we were, we were along for the same ride, just, you know, young and, you know, just big old eyes and, you know, just yeah, wanting I mean, to have fun and learn. You're not, you're not giving yourself enough credit. And I, I think that LA was my rite of passage. And it's also where I learned how to be intentional with networking, but you, you were a workhorse and, you, and obviously you still are. And I, I remember, yeah. I really, I mean, I have a great memory when it's stuff that I care about, but I remember the time that Rob Thomas sent you a video. I remember the time that you got to talk to Dave Matthews. And I remember Johnny Resnick and, you know, a thousand other stories, but it was such a fascination where you welcomed me in to this life where you would, I remember we get, went to get lunch with somebody in Studio City and it was a songwriter who wrote the song, Work It for RuPaul. And you kind of, his name was Jimmy, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I was, I was kind of your, I was like your tag along, but it wasn't something, it was, it was incredible, but I, I learned so much about the business. So I, I want people to kind of, understand this. Jimmy story. Harry. That was Jimmy Harry. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy Harry. Yeah. I remember we yeah. We went on to, uh, I think we ran into each other there, talked about that. And then we ended and talking about like maybe getting together and writing one day. Yeah. And we did. And then we wrote the song true. No way. Yeah. Wow. Which is one of the most popular songs of all time. And I think it's a song that most people might even have as their first dance at their wedding. And so, um, maybe I was, yeah part of brokering that deal but i can't but, believe you remember me i don't even remember that i just remember that now that you said it oh dude I, I i've got literally some of my fondest memories of my entire life were with you and um you know a lot of them are kind of fun 23 year old single guy stories but just the, <laughs> the stuff that i learned was just fascinating so let's let's kind of get us back into this headspace of, of kind of how you've defied the odds your entire life but you go from being a college student playing weekend gigs moving in with one of the most famous families literally in the entire world Johnny Resnick, who people may or may not know is the Goo Goo Dolls, yeah. his first album he ever produced, from what I remember, was yours. Yeah. It was your yeah. debut album. And so kind of what, what did that all look like? How did it all play together? Well, that was that was wild because so I signed a, a publishing deal first because I had sang for basically every label there was uh, and more like 15 labels. And I kind of got the same thing across the board, which was like, you know, we love his look. Um, we love his voice, but you know, we don't really, you know, hear any hit songs yet. And you know, that's kind of what they're looking for. And whereas I'm like, you know, like this was kind of like a new thing, you know, John Mayer just started, you know, kind of get popular, but the solo singer, you know, just a solo guy with an acoustic guitar wasn't like the popular thing at radio at that time. So a lot of labels, you know, they liked it, but they didn't see it. They were like, there's not really a space for this. Um, but this one guy, Evan Lamberg, knew that there was, and he goes, I'm gonna give you enough money to live, I'm gonna sign you to EMI, and then you just keep writing. So that way you don't have to worry about, you know, you know, 
you know, meals or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that's when I got the apartment, started writing nonstop. And then he goes, you know, on your wish list of people, if you could work with anybody, you know, uh, if you could write with anybody, work with anybody, who would it be? And I just spouted off Rob Thomas and Johnny Resnick, not thinking anything of it. Um, and uh, next thing I know, like literally two weeks later, he calls me and he goes, Johnny Resnick heard your stuff. He loves it. He wants you to come to his house in L.A. and, and uh, go say what's up. And, you know, I'm a, you know, huge Goo Goo Dolls fan. I thought it was a joke. Next thing I know, I'm pulling up to his house up in the hills and Johnny Resnick answers the door. Obviously, I'm nervous as hell. And I would go sit in his living room and we just start listening to music. And uh, I had probably wrote... Like, though, did he just pick random CDs and y'all... No, we listened to all my demos, like the dem like we probably listened to like 20 of my demos because I've been writing nonstop. And then he was like, man, he's like, I'm, I'm liking, you know, a lot of this stuff. I know Evan wanted us to write um, and we're going to write. But what do you, you know, what would you think if maybe I had like had a crack at producing some of these songs? And I was like, you could have a crack at all of them, Johnny Resnick. And uh, that's kind of how it happened. We ended up writing two songs together, and he was like, "Dude, you know, I loved writing songs. Like, and I love the writing thing, but like, I've always wanted to produce a record. I feel like this is something that I could help you with because I see a lot of myself in you." And uh, literally, he calls Evan Lamberg, tells him, "You know, I want to produce this record," and uh, that's how it happened. I made the whole record in his living room, uh, did or did all the vocals in his living room, and then. Um, you know, tracked at like these crazy huge studios. Next thing I know, I'm in Capitol Records. And it, I mean, it, it happened so fast. And I didn't even have time, honestly, to like think about what was happening around me because I was making my first album. Here I am going into work every day, like, dude, I'm making my first album. I'm so excited. He's like, kid, let's get to work. And I'm like, I was in like, you know, La La, making my first album, kind of new to this land. Johnny Resnick's already had, you know, 20, you know, number one hits and, you know, huge records. So he's just like, honing down on me. So we kind of, we kind of clashed a little bit in the sense that I was so young and naive, kind of, you know, like uh, you were, and I just I didn't know how things worked yet. And obviously the music business, just like I'm sure real estate, when you jumped into it, you think you know how it goes until you get into it. And you're like, this business is nothing like what I thought it was. Making a record is nothing like I saw on TV or in movies or how I imagined making a record would go. It was so different and so opposite. And I had to learn so much. <laughs> And I thought I knew it. Hey, Stanley, I'm talking to Rogers Healy here. Come on, Stanley. He's your realtor. Come Stan, on. I'll let you out in a second, big guy. So, uh, yeah, like I, we, you know, I, I had a lot to learn from him. I was naive. I thought I knew everything there was to, to know about making a record. You know, I had wrote these songs. I knew how I wanted them to sound. He heard things going another way. And then we ended up having to get uh, Evan Lamberg to come in and kind of sit us down um, because this record wasn't going to get finished and he would have chats with Johnny with me almost like therapy sessions because when you're making a record together it's like you're married you know you're you're having to compromise on a lot of things that you know me as the artist would be like I don't want to compromise on that him as the producer would be like well if I'm going to put my name on it I don't want to compromise that so we had to you know kind of learn a lot from each other and it was literally like a marriage making that first record but at the end of the day I was still like the music came out great. That's all that mattered. Well, why don't you explain, like, when someone's producing a record, what does that even mean? Because I, uh, I learned from you, too, from a business sense. It's like when I think of music, I think of, like, a song as, like, a pie with there's 10 slices. And you telling me 20 years ago that the songwriter gets, like, six slices. I think the performer gets one or two slices. And the producer 
Yeah, it, and that's changing too. All that kind of stuff changes as the business changes and, and uh, as music in general, you know, kind of moves up, moves along. The producer's main job is basically they're gonna they're gonna for me I'm a solo artist so they're gonna or if you're a band they're gonna you know put together you know the musicians you know Johnny has all these cats they're just incredible players that he thinks would be right you know for this song he's like I have a guy that's great for beats I'm gonna bring in Dan I have a guy who's an incredible bass player I'm gonna bring in Paul Bushnell this drummer Greg Bissonette's incredible so he would piece together the band you know sometime arrangements for songs if like maybe the bridge is too long or the second verse is too long and he thinks it should be shortened or if there's some lyric changes that he thinks could be stronger you know we'll kind of go about that kind of puts everything he's like a facilitator and then kind of you know can create a sound um with the band you know like if the keyboard player is playing uh an organ and he hears it as a mellotron you'll be like try the mellotron we'll see what that sounds like and then they'll try a Mellotron and be like, that's the sound we're going for. Let's go with that. Or, you know, something else with the bass. You know, if you hear a part and it's, you know, uh, kind of a staccato, you know, it's, you know, a little choppier, then he thinks, you know what might be better is if it's a longato and it's driving and it's like a, you know, kind of, you know, they kind of like a director almost, you know, or a producer of a movie puts together, gets the right actors, gets the right uh, director, gets the right cinematographer, you know, kind of does all that in a nutshell. So y'all are together pretty much nonstop until it's nonstop done. morning, morning, first thing in the day. till whenever we're done with the vocals. So sometimes two or three in the morning and wake up the next day, get back. I remember after like three weeks, I was delirious. I was driving home uh, from a session at like three in the morning. And I saw like, I was on the four, uh, the 101 driving back. And I saw like 30 bicyclists on the 101 driving on the highway with me. And I was like, oh my God, and I closed my eyes, opened them up and they were gone. So I was literally was seeing things because we were in there nonstop. But I mean, I loved it. I loved every second of it. Well, I, I think uh, to kind of shine on you a little bit more, your your unique abilities are, are multifold. But I want to talk about the songwriting aspect as well, because, again, yeah. what I learned from you, it's almost like you don't want to meet your heroes. And when you see how things really work under the hood, sometimes you kind of wish that you didn't know. But yeah. My, my business relative savvy was just always so fascinating with what you would share with me. But, you know, it's, it's really rare that you were you're such a successful artist, but also because you write your own songs. Isn't that right, too? Oh, yeah, of course. So what, what is a songwriting session? What does that look like? You sit down with Johnny Resnick or Rob Thomas or Evan Lambert or anybody. I mean, with everybody, it's different. You know, it's just every single session is going to be different. Um, I've never been uh like a you know we call in the business like a serial writer there's some people you know and they can just pump out songs some some people will pump out you know like in nashville they'll pump out like three songs a day and they just get in there and they know you know how to write hits and some people have a formula um for me i've i've never really been that i've always just kind of been when I'm inspired and uh, sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. Sometimes you go into a session and nothing comes out and I'll be like, dude, let's take our time, come back to it. Like, um, On the Way Down was quick. That was, we we wrote that in New York. We wrote that song in maybe two hours. Um, True took me like two weeks. So Johnny Resnick, he likes to uh, untune his strings. So he's very, very like uh, adamant about just messing with stuff trying stuff new you know he does a lot of open tunings um so for for when we wrote you know he told me that which i thought was pretty cool i didn't know that and so he's like just start on tuning stuff just see 
you know, until you play something, you, you hear something you like. So basically, I think what he's trying to do is get your brain out of doing what it naturally would just go to. So like your instincts of where I would, I know if I'm playing a certain chord, I naturally tend to go to, you know, the next chord as a certain progression. And it's very easy to stay in the similar progressions because most songs, there's only so many chords. And, uh, you know, half a million songs that you hear on the radio right now are the exact same progressions, but just with different melodies. Um, so he's trying to get, you know, to you to think a little bit outside the box. So we do this. I untune the guitar. We write this song called Illusions. We record it, you know, that night, um, finish it, uh, move on, go to the next song. Fast forward, uh, we're going to rehearse for the Take It All Away tour, and I go to play Illusions, and I didn't write down what I untuned my guitar to. So still to this day, I have no, no idea how to play it like I actually played it on the record. I can play the chords, like I know what the chords are, like you know, in normal tuning, but it's not the exact way I played it on the record and I'll never, I've never been able to figure it out and I never will. So that song will, will always be deemed just into the universe of never know how I played it. Wow. Do you, you remember your first memory of music? First memory of music? No, but I, I remember my, I, I, I did, uh, gosh, I do remember, I remember the smell of the Get a Grip album cover. Aerosmith, uh, yeah, with the cover. Aerosmith, Get a Grip. For some reason, I don't know why. I don't know if it was just my copy, but my copy had a certain smell that I'll always remember, and that's probably one of my earliest memories of having that album. That, and then playing Wildflower on just repeat when I was a kid. On Petty? On Petty, yeah. So that who, album. Huh? Who would people be surprised that were your influences? Obviously, we know Dave Matthews, Rob Thomas, Johnny Resnick. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I'm like you, dude. I, I listen to everything. There's literally something in everything that I like, but, and it's kind of, it's it's changed over the years as to what I kind of listen to at home. But when I was a kid, it was, I was just, I was listening to like Green Day and then uh, started, once I heard Dave Matthews, that's when I was like, became obsessed with acoustic guitar. And then I started listening to like Paul Simon and Bill Withers. And, uh, and then eventually started getting into like, you know, the Sam Cooks and Ooh. now it's now it's like Billy Holiday and Bing Crosby and um, you know, Cole Porter. Um, huh. when you're at my house, you you'll you'll very rarely hear anything new. It's typically Same. like nineteen anything, nineteen fifties, sixties, forties, seventies. Same. Uh, right now I'm I've re I'm revisiting I'm on a huge, you know, Brian Wilson Beach Boys kick. So yeah. I'm yeah. really obsessed with that. When you say, like, I almost said something earlier, but I'm, I'm a big Beach Boys fan, and I, I love Brian Wilson, I love Mike Love, I love all those guys, but the whole Pet Sounds album uh, and how people have kind of gotten invited into that story. Yeah, know, crazy. Just, yeah, with the Got same. Terrible reviews, you know, nobody, they thought he was crazy. Nobody it, liked it. And you listen to it now, it's like, how did you not hear that? Yeah, because I, I think that that it, it as cliche as it sounds it, it really was ahead of its time and i don't know oh, yeah absolutely i don't know if we'll ever have another example of people that are ahead of their time especially right now and we can kind of talk later about the state of music today but um i, I tell you that's where when you were describing the production setting i immediately thought of brian wilson and pet sounds and yeah it's incredible dude did I ever do, do you know were you in la for my uh my beach boy story no john stamos no uh oh. Uh, no, but I, no, I, I don't think Dude, I, I, this is my only, my only, my closest thing to a Beach Boys story. So I was at Jeff Franklin house, Jeff Franklin's house. The creator in, of Full House. Creator of Full House. 
And uh, he actually bought, he has, he lives on the old uh, Manson property. Oh, really? Charles, Charles Manson? Man yeah. Or the, uh, where the, uh, Charles Manson was best friends with Dennis Wilson. Of the, the yeah. Wilson. Crazy stuff. But that, that, that was, uh, he bought the Tate house, like the Earl Clancy Tate house where the, uh, that stuff went down. So it's kind of creepy just at first off going to Jeff's house because you have to go up that driveway where like, you know, they parked and then did all that stuff. Obviously that house was torn down and he built his house over it. But anyways, so I'm at his house somehow and there's a stage. Next thing I know, Beach Boys are playing and I'm like losing, losing my mind. And of course, John Stamos, obviously a huge fan as well. One of the reasons why I picked up acoustic guitar as well when he played Michelle Smiling on Full House. One of the greatest little love songs ever. Never forget that when I was a kid. And so John Samos is up there. Beach Boys are playing. I think they were playing uh, Barbara Ann. And um, I see Stamos, you know, he's playing guitar. You know, usually he's playing the drums, but he's playing guitar. He's up there and he points and it's in my direction. And he goes, does, does one of those. Like does a little, oh, little, kissy, does a little, little kissy, a wink, and then does this. And so I obviously go, Oh man, I don't know who he's talking to, but that's some lucky fellow back there, <laughs> whoever it was. I don't know. But that's awesome. And I don't think a thing of it. And uh, literally the next day uh, on Twitter, John Stamos at Ryan Cabrera, hey man, try to get you up there with us. And I lost my mind. I was like, no. He was oh, talking to me, dude. God, there's still he time. Was pointing at me, and he was like, Cabrera, get up here. So I had a chance to get up. And oh singing God. with the Beach Boys with John Stamos, and I blew it because I, you know, I was, I, I was like, I, I didn't know if he knew who I was. I, I wasn't assuming it was me, but he was pointing at me. He does the kiss. I have it on video actually of him doing the. Oh my up there. God. He's Bro. a he's a big, he's a big music music fan, dude. and uh, we have a couple couple of mutual friends now. And he's and they're like, dude, he's like that. Like he loves playing with people. He loves jamming. And I'm like. Dang it! How did I miss my opportunity to sing with the Beach Boys? Mike Love was up there. I think Al was up there. Is this the part but, that I tell you four years ago I sang on stage with the Beach Boys in Dallas? Did you really? And it was because of John Stamos, and I'm not kidding. I literally am not kidding. Did he do the same thing to you? Does he do this to everybody? No, this was in. I took my dad. So like everybody, like, like the Beach Boys, it's like the Container Store. No one ever says I hate the Container Store. You leave and you're in a better mood, and that's just that's uh, the absolutely. Beach Boys. And yeah. I took my dad. One of my favorite venues is the Granada, is, is the Majestic here in Dallas. And I took him and we sat front row and we both knew every single song. I sang every, every single lyric. And randomly, Stamos was the drummer. And it was Mike Love, Al Jardine, um, Brian Wilson wasn't there. And then a few other people too. But in the middle of the concert, um, somebody came over to the side of us and they said, hey, the next song, go on stage. And I was like, what? And so my dad and I got up there and sang Kokomo with Mike Love and John Stamos. And then afterward, we went backstage and um, had you a- Just for being an excited fan, just because you I knew every word? Like, I brought the average age down 15 years. And I think they appreciated that I we brought a lot of energy. But um, yeah, man, it was it was awesome. And Stamos couldn't have been any nicer. And I'll, I'll send you a funny oh. video this, but- Oh my God, that's amazing. So which, jealous. Which, I had that chance. You took my chance. Which reminds me of my other fun got on stage and sang uh, situation was your birthday party. The last time I had a Red Bull vodka back in 2005. Oh God, who, I can't believe you drank that. And Gavin DeGraw was playing at your Beatles themed birthday. And oh yeah, Woodstock. I had, 
I was probably 40 Red Bull vodkas in. And next thing you know, I had a wig down to here and he thought I was a real singer. And I got on stage and after he heard me sing, he couldn't boot me off. But I think I ruined his entire set. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, they, I remember the, uh, the police, like, or the neighborhood shut it down. Yeah. We were, we were going forever. What a party that was. That was like 2008. I think that was my 30th. That was way before that. That was. Because no. I, that was, I had the long, I had the long black hair. Oh yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, that was 2008, yeah. my 30th birthday. Lisa Marie Presley's house. Yeah. Yeah. Recre- uh, I recreated Woodstock. What? A, what a yeah! I got pictures from that. Yeah, same. I I have pictures that will not make it to the internet, but I'll I'll, I'll share oh. them with you. Uh, no. Okay, so back back to music and your first memory. Your first memory as a fan was Aerosmith "Get a Grip," which I'm sure Steven Tyler will be. Excited yeah, and then that uh, I went to my first concert was REM with Radiohead before like Radiohead was ever big in the states. Wow. Fun fact. Do you know where REM originated? I would, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say Seattle, but I'm obviously no. wrong. One of the first college bands. Ever, no, Athens, Georgia. They went to UGA and they were yeah. one of the first big bands to make it out of a college town. And because of them, people like OAR and Guster and yeah. even John Mayer decided to oh, go yeah. kind of, kind of turn to something. So when did you discover that you had a gift that, you actually have you have charisma, which you're, you're a great salesperson. But coupling that with a true talent, how old were you? Uh, well, I don't think I ever really, really knew. Like I never really thought of myself that that way, really. But I just started playing because I liked it. Um, you know, I had, like hearing myself when I started. Had I like <laughs> had the ear now that I did then, I probably wouldn't have pursued it. Um, but I, you know, I worked really hard at it, and uh, you know, I tried to. You know, I took a you know a lot of vocal lessons when I got out there, and just kept trying to build up the instrument and just kind of get better. And then, obviously, with writing, you know, the more you do it, the better you get. So I just never really stopped. Um, but you know, I've always been. I think when I wrote "True," was when I was like really like finally like onto something, or I felt like I was onto something. I felt like I was like proud of you know what I was writing. You know, all the other stuff I was. I was just writing, you know, I was just writing songs. I was just young and just excited to try to, you know, play music. And I was in Los Angeles, it was an exciting time. But I think the moment that I realized like, maybe I might be good at writing was after I wrote True. I was like, I think that is a really good song. Because I don't really, I can't, you can't tell, you know? You, you don't, it's hard to judge your own music. How long did you have to wait after you wrote it before it was on the radio? Oh, that was a while. Because that we had, I had made the record, then recorded it. And then after the album was done, it didn't come out for another year because they wanted to work on the way down for a long time, which actually I, you know, at the time I was super antsy. I was like, I just want to put an album out. Why isn't it out yet? But you know, the, the way that they marketed it was very like, um, you know, college style. We hired a, a street team, um, Aware Records, which was, you know, which was Mayer's label at the time, uh, like Pat McGee Band, you know, Dispatch, all these bands that I kind of looked up to. Like we did that route of like just, Word of mouth, kids on the streets at college campuses passing out these samplers. I was one of those guys for you. I got punched in the face. Wait, what? At University of South Carolina. I was with you. I got clocked in the face. I was over there, like, helping to pay. Why? Remember that little kid? His name was Anderson. And I was filming, and you had just played a big party, and we were at a fraternity house. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This kid clocked me right in the face. (laughs) That's when we were, like, sleeping on couches. Yeah, and then we and then we flew home on AirTran, which is no longer around. I remember the plane almost landed on another plane, and you were you were you were dead asleep. And I woke you up. I was like, "We're about to die." And, <laughs> That's a good way to wake up. Thanks, buddy. You should just let me sleep. And yeah, how did you? Uh, if oh I can ask, like, 
a couple more questions that the yeah. evolution of music and, and how you're, you're a purist and you're a poet and you, uh, you know, you take such pride in your craft. How is, how have you been able to stay in the scene, stay relevant in the music world, knowing that so much has changed. And what I was telling you earlier, I, you know, you said you'd listen to music from the thirties, forties, fifties. I don't listen to music that was made after 2010. And for me, you know, I, I just, as my palate grew a little bit more, um, you know, mature, I really, you know, can appreciate someone like you that much more because you're kind of the last of a dying breed. I think that you and I grew up as, you know, class of 99 and 2000 in high school, the last great era of music. We had Voice to Men, we had Guns and Roses, and we have Ryan Cabrera. So how have you tried to stay relevant in that scene without appreciate being- you putting me in, in, in such great company? You know, you don't, you don't, try, I mean, you, you are, you're, you are and you're not, you're relevant in your own world. It depends what you're doing. Like, obviously I'm not on the radio, you know, these days, but what I built up, you know, during, or at least my whole goal, you know, from day one was to just always be touring and always, you know, have fun performing live. Um, right now, you know, for us, like we teamed up and I'm on this um, Pop 2K tour, which started like maybe five years ago it was me 98 degrees and o-town which is a little bit you know different from the music i play but we come to find that you know a lot of these fans just love pop music and pop being anything you know pop doesn't doesn't have to be boy band pop you know but, but i love that too um but you could also be singer songwriter pop you know at the end of the day i, I write pop melodies and um as far as like trying to stay relevant, it's impossible. You can't really do that. I'm not gonna be. I'm never gonna be a, you know, TikTok star. You know, do you know? Um, I'm just. That's not really what I do. Like, there's plenty of kids and people. You know, you don't even have to be a kid or whatever. But just people who are more creative at that than I am. So I just stick to what I love doing, and that's just playing the guitar. And getting out there with the guys right now, um, the tour is me, Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray and O-Town and um, Brad from LFO. And it's just like a, a variety of, you know, when you hear some of these songs kick back, you know, and we play new stuff as well, but we, I love playing the old stuff and not shying away from that because, like you said, you listen to stuff from before 2010. There's a, there's a sound there that, you know, just is, it feels good and... Um, it's just fun and like but even like the new stuff now like that i play some of the some of the new stuff there's a newer song called whatever whenever that actually like goes over sometimes better than you know some of the older stuff and then it's fun now too to you know see new people out there and play songs you play older songs that they've never heard that that now they're introduced to um but as long as you just stay on the road um i'll never be like just a you know like a, a content guy because that's just not me uh, I like to be in front of people. I always have, and that's where that's where I'm home. And that's that's for me how I personally uh, consider you know relevance and um, success in my in my own world. As long as I get to you know keep touring, playing music, and you know you know doing DJ stuff, and uh, then I'm good. What's next? What's next? Well, I actually do have new music. I just uh, obviously you know just got married. And uh, my first inspiration, I wrote the song three years ago when I first met my wife. And it was the first time like, I had been like truly, truly inspired for a while. I can write stuff for like other people. Um, 
you know, I wrote a song for Avril's last record, you know, so we worked on that record. So that was really cool and different and that's exciting and fun for me. But as far as me writing for myself, I didn't, that didn't really hit until I met Lex and then uh, went straight to the studio, wrote this song called Worth It. And um, then now, since that's kind of kicked off, you know, a whole batch of new stuff. Um, so now writing just all kinds of different stuff, obviously with the way the music is now. And um, one of the beautiful things about you know, I'm still a record guy. I love records. You know, I, I like yeah. albums. But you know, as far as artist-wise, one of the beautiful things about nowadays is you can write one song, pop it out. Next month, you know, put out another song. Next month, put out another song. Because obviously, people's attention spans are so fast these days that putting out a whole album isn't as important as it used to be. So one of the the good things that you can take from it, you know, trying to make a positive out of you know whatever the state is of the music business, is that. You know, I could write a song like that and then just put out a single. So the plan now is I've been waiting, you know, for the wedding because instead of making like a music video with, you know, some actress or, you know, creating some, you know, fake storyline to go to the song, I wanted it to be real footage. So I hired um, as our wedding videographer, one of my good buddies who is an incredible music video director and he like just basically turned this insane beautiful wedding to life in a music video so the song like you know is the song that Lexi walked down the aisle to um, it's a song that I think a lot of people will relate to and um, it's a song that I think a lot of people can now use and be like that's my wedding song um, and that to me obviously now being married is very important and I think you know I think ballads will always be relevant um, whether you know it becomes you know a huge rate of success or not obviously isn't the most important thing to me it really was um writing the song for my wife a song that we'll have forever and a song that i think once we release it other people will you know have that forever too because that's you know one of my favorite things about true is not only you know having songs on the radio is cool and like songs on tv shows and in movies is really cool and obvious obviously special but being a part of you know what i now know to be somebody's best day of their life is you know something that i'll be able to take for the rest of my life so as far as a musician goes that's the biggest honor you could ever have so writing this love song i think is going to be really important um to me and a lot of people out there so i'm excited about that to finally get to show people because i've been i've been sitting on the song because right now i didn't really need to put out anything you know people are like when are you gonna put out new music i hadn't really had you know a reason to put out anything you know new yet now i do now i have you know a reason a story behind it and then after that, I got a, a, a catalog of new stuff that is uh, kind of all over the place as far as genre goes. Okay. Can I ask you two more questions? You sure can. Okay. One, you're stuck on an island. You're allowed to listen to one song and only one song forever. What's the song and why? Hallelujah. Uh, Jeff Buckley? Jeff Buckley version. Um, and I, I don't know. There's something about that song that I could just, it just never gets old to me. It puts me, it puts me in a, in a place. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously it's an impossible question because, um, it depends what mood you're on, you know, your mood you're in. So if I, you know, if I'm in like straight chill mode and I got to hear something for the rest of my life, it's probably that if it's going to be like, I'm like living my best Island life. Oh, it's probably, maybe I might go eye to eye from a goofy movie. Oh, it might not be, you're stuck in Galveston. So you're not in the Caribbean. Um, oh. You're like- and I'm oh, sticking with uh, Alleluia. Alleluia. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, super I'm group. spiritual about that song. Brian Cabrera is the lead singer of a super group. Who are the other members of the band? Oh. Oh man. Okay. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have George Harrison as my guitar player. Wow. Background vocalist. I have George right there. Well, this would be the weirdest band of all time. Um, bass players. Oh man. I'm just gonna go just on energy alone. I'm gonna throw Flea up there. I can see that. I'm gonna throw Flea up there just for the energy. Obviously, this would be a terrible band, but just as far as sonically, because they're such different genres. But a Beetle, a Chili Pepper, a Cabrera. Who else? I got a Cabrera. I got a Chili Pepper. I got a Beetle. Um, a piano player. I'm gonna throw Herbie Hancock up there. Wow. Herbie, either Herbie or Thelonious Monk, I think would be dope. Background singers, I got Etta, I got Billy. That was my two background vocalists. And then drummer, I'm gonna go Bonham. Wow, that's a, that is an eclectic mix of people. It sure is. Somebody I told you, I'm, I got eclectic taste. I like it. Um, what do you think that would sound like? I, I don't know if it would sound great. It wouldn't. But, um, you'd get a lot of, you know, it, it's like a movie with, it'd be like Ocean's 18. And it's starring everybody from Lizzo to Brad Pitt. There might not be chemistry, but somebody's no. gonna watch it. No, yeah. yeah. But okay, so for you, different reasons. Every every piece of that band is for a different reason, obviously. I like it. So you, you look back on your illustrious music career and, and over two decades of being in the public eye and you know being a heartthrob and now being a husband and being a guy that's got some wisdom. Uh, what what are you most <laughs> proud of as far as your accomplishments are concerned? You've got Billboard hits. You've got massive records what what's what are, what's the handful of things that you look back on and you can say i did it um well you know other than other than uh actually meeting my wife and getting married um because i think there was a lot of people mainly majority of my family who thought it was never going to happen um <laughs> i don't know i'm saying the fact that you and i both got married within one year is a, a lot of help yeah. goes over we we did we did it uh, I know there was a lot of people who thought it would never happen, including my wife as, as well. She's like, I, I thought you were going to be like Clooney. Um, and even he did. It. But um, I would say probably the proudest accomplishment, honestly, to, to be completely honest, is all of the charity work I've done. I've raised um, a lot of money along the ways and never lost sight of what, how lucky I am to get to do what I do. Um, I feel like the most fortunate person in the world because I don't really consider myself um, that great you know but i i feel very lucky to get to play music and you know i'll hear some of these recordings and i've, I've learned to actually start to like my voice um the first record second record i was always like turn it off turn it off i can't stand my voice um but now when i'm laying down or i'm doing some of these vocals and listening back i've learned to actually be proud of the voice that i'm like oh dude I, it's a really cool tone and i never really acknowledged that before i didn't give myself um any of that like self-love when it came to to that and I, and I and I still think you know I've always been like oh it could be better but I've learned to 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 appreciate you know and be okay with um, uh, liking my you know what I'm doing now but my biggest accomplishment would definitely be you know always remaining myself and and doing the charity work that I've done um, all these fundraisers and or have been a lot of work and I uh, I put a lot of them on myself obviously you know being a part of you know anytime people ask me to do any sort of charity work and i can and i'm available i try to make sure and be there but then also being active about putting together my own stuff if i'm home for a couple months 
that could be you know time I could be organizing a charity event. Um, we just did one last month uh, where we raised I think like twelve thousand dollars just for my living room, and that is something that I think I would be I would consider myself the most proud of. Um, continuing to do it and not just like starting out and doing it when people were watching and you know and when it would like you know there's a radio station asking us to do it but continuing to do that um and giving back i think uh, is probably uh what i'm most proud of i love that well i'm proud to be your friend and being able to Seth, talk back to you. at you babe it's yeah. been a long time it has been a long proud time of you too thanks man and, and this means a lot to me and i think that for me you know i've I've, I've randomly have been a real estate guy and I've been blessed to be successful, but not, no matter how hard I try, nothing gets me more excited than talking about music. And yeah. I found that, you know, your instrument is your guitar and your voice and your uh, instruments and maybe it's the pen. And mine, I think has to just be my heart. And no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to have your voice or your skills, but I, I feel like this is going to be something that I'm going to be able to go and you know, make an impact and, and leave a yeah. legacy and, and, and share the stories. Who, who else do you think I should be able to interview? Who do you think would enjoy this that could benefit from it? Well, obviously, Nick, I think you said you were going to talk to Nick, which I think he's got a different perspective. Yeah. He's he's the business aspect, but he comes, he's kind of uh, Nick Lippman being my manager. Yeah. Um, Nick has always been a kind of a pioneer. You know, he thinks outside the box when it comes to music. There's a lot of, you know, record labels and you know, you're going to hear tons of stories of people, you know, labels being turned down, labels telling you this is not good music, labels telling you um, you can't go in this direction. And then there's that box. And then Nick is the rhombus outside of it. You know, he's an amoeba. There's no such thing as any sort of line when it comes to um, how to do things in this business. And he's the kind of creative that uh, this this world needs and every business needs, but he just happens to be in the music business. So uh, I'm very fortunate to have him as a major. So he will be a great conversation um, to have. Um, I mean, you've made friends with so many people along the way. Everybody loves you. So I'm sure anybody you ask is going to be happy to talk to you. So yeah. well, I'd love, I'd love if I have any ideas as well, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Yeah, I'd love it, man. And, and I, I really appreciate you doing this. And, um, you know, all, all kidding aside, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And I've told you this for, for 20 years, but Thank you. What, you. what you did for me at a young age uh, is literally a gift that no one else has ever given me. You accepted me and you made me feel uh, great about myself. And you are one of the five most uh, oh, people truly I'll ever have in my life, including my family. And so uh, thank you for that. And for, for this gift and for being a part of our wedding night as well. Um, Cause that'll, that'll always be one of my highlights is playing that video for Abby um, right after we got married. And um, so I, I just want to tell you, thank you. 